Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, that is page 452 in the Black Bibles provided. Of course, we've been studying through the book of 1 Peter, and, and we've come to a new section in, in 1 Peter, so I've decided to hit the pause button um, for us to just, uh, starting next week, begin a four-week series, a Christmas series uh, called Name Above All Names, where we'll be looking at Isaiah 9 and, and looking at those titles for the, the coming Messiah, the titles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that'll begin next week, Lord willing, and take us into Christmas. So we'll, again, Lord willing, restart First Peter after Christmas. But today I wanted to do a standalone sermon on Psalm 11. So once you've found that, would you stand please with me and for the reading of God's word, this is a, we'll see this is a psalm of David. So please follow along as I read Psalm 11. Let's hear God's word together. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is What Should We Do As Society Unravels? What Should We Do As Society Unravels? As we see our culture sink deeper and deeper into sin and perversion, as Christianity is treated with more and more contempt, how should Christians respond? Because this is a question we face, isn't it? Daily, weekly, what do we do? What should we do? Should we run away and isolate ourselves? Should we just kind of go with the flow? Do we try to fight back in some way against this, this moral decay? Well, David faced a similar dilemma in this psalm. He was in a similar quandary and situation. Verse, look at how verse 3 puts it. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You see, he's saying... What can God's people do, right? When we see righteous there, the righteous are God's people. They are those who, by God's grace, have been placed in a right relationship with God. Obviously, from a New Testament standpoint, we, you know, we think of how Paul, the Apostle Paul describes righteousness, and we know that none of us are righteous, no, not one, right? And we're, we're only God's people because He has graciously acted first. He has forgiven our sins. He has clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. But this is talking about what, what do God's people do, or we would say now in the New Covenant, what do Christians do 
when society is falling apart. That's what David is, is the question before him. When the world is falling apart, when the foundations of morality are falling apart, what can the righteous do? What do Christians do when the moral fabric of society is unraveling? That's the question the psalm is going to answer for us. And let me first just kind of give an overview. Let me explain the structure of the psalm, lest you kind of get confused about who's, who's speaking here or what, right? David, in this psalm, he's interacting with his advisors, with his counselors. There in verse 1 when he says, How can you say to my soul... The you there is plural. So David is talking to advisors and he's saying, how can you say this to me? And then notice there at the end of verse 1, the the translators have put in quotes for us, right? Before the word flee. And that quotation goes all the way through the end of verse 3. You see that? So what David's doing is he's recounting back to the counselors what they've been telling him to do. (laughs) But he's saying, how can you tell me to do this? And then he, da-da-da-da-da-da, right? And then we see uh, not only is David repeating back their counsel, but he's actually taking exception to their counsel, right? How can you tell me to do this? And then from verse 4 to 6 is kind of like David's response to his counselors, to God's people. And so by him answering that, by him answering his counselors, he's providing us with the, the proper answer, the proper perspective we need to have. We need to follow David's example here. We need to follow David's example of trusting God and following God in a fallen world. So I I pray that this will will help us do that today. We don't know the exact setting of uh, when David penned this psalm. Obviously, he's in danger. Obviously, there are people hunting him down. (laughs) That happened a lot in David's life. That's why it's hard to know the exact setting. Was Was it Saul? Was it Absalom? We don't know. I tend to think it might have been Saul, but it doesn't really matter. So I want us to study the psalm this morning under three headings. You see those in, your, in the bulletin there. David's situation, David's advisors, and David's decision. So first, let's, let's just look closer at David's situation. I summed it up this way. An evil, crumbling culture. An evil, crumbling culture. Again, verses 2 and 3 really describe David's situation. Look at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Again, David is repeating back what his counselors have said to him, but but David's not disputing their assessment of his situation, right? They're they're telling the truth about the, the, the danger he's in. David's enemies were trying to kill him. (laughs) Wicked men were hunting David down and look at, they are ready to strike. I mean, what a picture, right? They they have the, the, the bow already bent back. They have the arrow already in the string. They're taking aim at David's heart. They're ready to pounce on him. And to make matters worse, look, these wicked men are not fighting David right out in the open where it might be a little easier to defend yourself, right? He says they're shooting in the dark, or in other words, from the dark. They're lurking in the shadows. They're, they're ready to destroy David without warning. David is in constant danger. It's like we say uh, in sports sometimes, you got to keep your head on a swivel, right? You know, you got to know where the attacks are coming from. 
That's kind of how David is. He knows the enemies are out there. And they're ready to pounce on him. He's wondering where the next attack, attack will come from. But notice what makes the situation even more dire. Not only is David being attacked by wicked men, but it's like the, the, the safety net, the justice system, the protections that should be in place are, are being no help at all. Look at verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The foundations here are a metaphor for the the social order of the day. In other words, these, these foundations are, would be like the principles of justice upon which Israel was founded. So these foundations would in, in, entail the, the, the people, the, the institutions that have been set in place to protect the innocent, to, to govern rightly, to do justice, to, to, to uh, call wicked people to account, right? And, and so, yeah, it's, it's appropriate to call those things foundations because they're so integral, aren't they? You know, you think about the laws and, 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 again, in our culture, you know, you think about police or, or our government or our, our, our laws. Those things are foundational. They're kind of what keeps things working properly, right? Just like a foundation is, is so integral to a, a home or a building or a structure. It provides security. It's it, it provides then the protection, keeping things in, in place. But if the foundations are destroyed, what happens to a building? It comes crumbling down, doesn't it? And like I said, we don't know the exact setting in David's life, but, but think about, I mean, and this would apply really to Saul or Absalom, but especially Saul. I mean, think about what it was like when King Saul was hunting him. <laughs> what? What can the righteous do when wicked men attack and the structures that have been set in place to help protect have been destroyed? I mean, think about it. The king was the one who was supposed to work justice for his people. The king is the one who's supposed to protect his people, right? Well, in David's case, it's the king that's trying to kill him. <laughs> so what can he do when the very foundations are being destroyed? What can David do when the king and his army who are supposed to be maintaining justice are the very people who are unjustly trying to seek his life? And again, to put it in, in our modern day, it'd be like, what, what do we do if, if, if the courts are corrupt or if, or if the government has been on evil or if, or if, or if the, the law or the army or whatever, if those guys can be paid off and they're doing evil? What, what do we do? We're in trouble as a society, Right? This is where David found himself in Psalm 11. And, and again, Christians today, we praise God, you know, we don't have the, the widespread corruption that a lot of countries do in their, in their systems. But yet we know there is corruption. And beyond just the systems, we, we look around and we see the moral structures crumbling, don't we? What can Christians do when evil is called good and good is called evil? What can Christians in America do when the Judeo-Christian values upon which our country was founded are disintegrating? When, when the killing of babies in the womb is, is deemed a personal right that is to be upheld at all costs, it's like an, it's like an idol to many people. What can we do when... when for people 
to hold to the biblical understanding of marriage is now considered dangerous. Making people feel unsafe to just hold to the biblical, let alone the historical, traditional views of marriage. When, when now to evangelize or to preach the Bible could be labeled hate speech. When our government leaders seek to take away our freedoms to gather or our, our, our parental rights to raise our children according to God's word, what can the righteous do? What can Christians do? What can God's people do? What can Christians do when our culture demands that we endorse sinful practices, right? It's not enough for us just to say, okay, well, we don't believe that and we're going to you know, keep doing what we believe. It's like, no, you, you need to affirm and approve of the evil. That's what our society says. What can Christians do when the foundations of marriage and, and gender and sanctity of life are, are being destroyed? What can the righteous do when a culture is not just neutral, but is actually and actively working against God's word? What can we do when the moral fabric of our society is unraveling? Again, I, didn't, I don't take any pleasure in dwelling on those things, and I know you guys know that that's the world we live in, right? But I'm just helping us see that this is very pertinent to us today. What do we do? Well, that brings us then to our second heading. That was David's situation, right? Well, now let's consider David's advisors. Right? We've kind of seen the situation. Well, what did his advisors tell David to do? What was their counsel to David of how he should handle this situation? Well, we see their counsel in the second half of verse 1. <laughs> David says, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? That was their counsel. They, they said, David, here's the situation. The you know, your enemies are after you. They're ready to pounce. The, the society that should be protecting you is unraveled. They're the, they're the very ones who are trying to kill you. David, just flee. Flee to your mountain, David. Run away. Save yourself. The odds are stacked against you. It's time for self-preservation. The soldiers, the leaders, the laws, the system that was put in place to protect the innocent is not going to help you. Because, again, those are the very people that are trying to kill you. Get as far away from here as possible. And, again, I'm just I'm, I'm kind of imagining what their counsel might have entailed here. David, if this was the t- at the time of Saul, David, forget about that. I know Samuel anointed you, but forget about that promise of being the next king. Quit holding on to that. that that's just a pipe dream. That's not going to happen. Start your life over, David, in another country. Right? Just get out of here. It's not safe for you here. Give up this romanticized notion of leading God's people for his glory. Flee to your own mountain, David. And again, Christians face this same temptation, right? Not that we have advisors telling us to do that necessarily, although it depends on what cable channel we're listening to. But even maybe our own, our own hearts are... are, are our friends and family, as we look around and see the foundations of morality crumbling, we think, man, things have gotten so bad, we just need to flee, don't we? Flee California. Let's find the promised land somewhere else. Let's go to a more conservative part of the country, right? Or let's, 
be, be, even better than that, let's just flee to a remote, isolated part of the country where we don't have to be around people, where we can just live our own lives, right? Some people are tempted that way. And again, I'm not saying God doesn't ever move us on, but yet we know that's a temptation, isn't it? That's a knee-jerk reaction. we got to just get out of here. Things are so bad. Or even if we don't move away, we still can kind of personally adopt this isolation mentality, this fleeing mentality, right? Let's just withdraw completely from this world. Let's just flee to our to our garage doors that open and close and our, our, our home theaters, and let's just isolate ourselves. Let's just find our, our Christian bubbles and let's just stay there as much as possible, right? And again, by all means, we need to be gathering. I'm not saying that, but you get what I'm saying. That temptation to isolate, and yet we know that's not what God calls us to, right? We know God calls us to Well, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus prayed in John 17, not for his people to be taken out of the world, but for them to be protected from evil and to be sanctified by his word. So we're not to hide. We're not to isolate. We're not to put a bushel over our lights. We're to actually shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15 says. But yet this is a temptation, isn't it? Again, I was thinking about what are the other, you know, m- metaphors or, or the other mountains that we would use in this, in this metaphor that we're tempted to flee to. The mountain of isolation. Maybe, maybe we're tempted to just flee to the mountain of conforming to this world. All right, let's go the opposite direction. Rather than isolate, let's just integrate <laughs> fully. You know, if living a godly life gets you persecuted and, and society doesn't want to come to your rescue but actually injures you because you're trying to live differently, then maybe we need to just look more like the world so we fit in, right? Let's adopt the world's practices. Let's adopt the world's values so they accept us. Churches are tempted to do this, right? Let's, let's water down the, the preaching to kind of the lowest common denominator that we all can agree on. Then we don't make any waves. Then no one's offended, And maybe we can kind of, you know, avoid a lot of trouble, right? Obviously, that would be the wrong thing to do. God's Word says, do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2. We've seen in 1 Peter that we're sanctified by the Spirit. We've been set apart from this sinful world for God. So that's another mountain we're tempted to flee to, the mountain of conformity. Here's a mountain we're tempted to flee to when when we see things going poorly. It's just the the security of of our own resources, right? We see things declining around us, and so we're tempted to find security in our wisdom, in our wealth. We'll just get as prepared as we can for whatever danger is going to happen, right? We'll build up the nest egg. We'll, we'll get the ammunition. We'll get the food. We'll, we'll just try to be as prepared as we can. If we can strategize, get the right people in office maybe, then that can help. If we can get our retirement up to a certain amount, then we can feel more secure. 
And again, please understand, there's some wisdom in doing those things, right? Building retirement, electing godly officials are not bad things to do, but my point is we can't flee to those. They can't be our hope, right? We can't be putting our hope in those mountains of refuge. Oh, if we can just get that candidate in office, that's going to fix everything. No. Fleeing to any of these things, whether it be isolation or conformity or trusting in our own resources, those are all the wrong things to do. That's the wrong counsel to follow, right? That's, that's not trusting in the Lord. That's not being faithful to the Lord. And David saw that. David rejected this counsel. That leads us to our final heading, David's decision. David's decision was to focus on the Lord. The counsel was to flee to your mountain, but he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus on the Lord. Yes, I'm going to, you know, hide when I need to hide from Saul, but I'm, I'm trusting in God's promises, and I'm, I'm turning my gaze on the Lord. You see how he begins the psalm. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? <laughs> you see the contrast? He says, you're telling me to find a refuge in, in my mountain. He says, but in, my refuge is in the Lord. Yahweh. You see, it's capital letters. His covenant God. The God who had revealed himself as the great I am. As the self-existent one. David said, that's who I'm trusting in. He's my refuge. He's my stronghold. He's my fortress. Rather than flee to some man-made mountain, so to speak, David says, I'm going to focus on the Lord. Not flee, but focus on the Lord. Again, the advisors rightly saw the problem, but they gave the wrong counsel. Look again at verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? It's like the advisors have forgotten God. And that's so easy to do, isn't it? We leave God out of the equation. <laughs> the most important piece of the equation we forget and leave out. Right? We just are looking at our circumstances. And I think that's probably what the advisors were doing you know, they were saying, David, do you know how many people are after you? You know how, how high a power these are? This is coming from the top, you know? They were speaking from the flesh. They were not taking into account God Almighty who rules and reigns over all. And so that's what David in his response, you know, again, I don't know if he's coaching these guys or if he's just, you know, preaching to himself. Obviously, God has, has preserved it for us. We need his answer to follow here today. So he says, I'm going to focus on the Lord. And that's what we must do. David wasn't focusing on the, the arrows that were pointed at him. He wasn't focusing on the foundations that were being crumbled. He wasn't ignorant of those things and, and we, we can't stick our heads in the sand right we need to be aware of the culture around us so we can speak into that with God's truth so again that's why we're not talking about isolating we're not talking about being like ostriches and putting our head in the sand let's be informed but we don't focus on those things 
Instead, we focus on the Lord. And what do we see? What truths of, about the Lord do we see as we focus on Him? I want to share three with you today that I see here in Psalm 11. David's already stated in verse 1, In the Lord, Yahweh, that I am, that's who I take refuge in. And then in verses 4 through the remainder, he, he's, he's elaborating on that. He's focusing on the Lord. And here's some truths we see. Number one, God reigns. God reigns. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Again, He's not focused horizontally on the things that are crumbling or on the dangers before Him. He is looking up to the Lord. And He says, the Lord is reigning from heaven, from His heavenly temple and His heavenly throne. We know that even, even under the Old Covenant when they had the tabernacle and then later when they had the temple and that was a blessing of God and, and yes, his, his presence dwelt there in a special way, but he always told them, I cannot be contained by any building, right? This is, this is just a pattern of the reality that the Lord is in his holy temple. He's, in his, he's on his holy heavenly throne. The temple in heaven is where God dwells where God is worshipped day and night by the angelic beings. What a contrast I see there, right? David, around him he sees, and he's being reminded and told, the foundations around you are crumbling. Yes, that's true. The, the man-made institutions are, are, are crumbling. But God's temple is secure. God's throne is secure. That's where God is. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's being worshipped. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Right there, The nations are doing their stuff. They're, they're trying to uh, attack God's people and thwart God's plans. What is God doing up in heaven? He's laughing. Psalm 2 says. <laughs> says, I have... I've put my king in place and no one's going to dislodge him from his throne. The Lord is not anxious. We obviously get anxious. We obviously lament over the decay. And we do get anxious when freedoms are taken away and, and you know, when this stuff gets closer and closer to our orbit. But God's not anxious. He's not wringing his hands. He's not pacing around wondering if his plan is going to be accomplished. No, loved ones, remember, God reigns. And he reigns over all and he is in complete control. The Bible is chock full of those truths. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 103.19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God reigns. And he reigns in such a sovereign and complete and total way that he controls all events for the purposes of advancing his kingdom. Ephesians says he's working all things together according to the counsel of his will. 
And so if we focus on horizontally only, yes, we're going to be fearful. We're going to be anxious. But David's telling us to turn our focus to the Lord. I think David would tell his advisors and he would tell us today, you see the foundations crumbling, right? You see the passing of laws that are contrary to God's word. But turn your gaze up. Do you see the Lord on his throne reigning and ruling? Do you see the Lord, who, the sovereign Lord who's actually, Proverbs says, directing the king's heart like channels of water to accomplish his purposes? Yes, you see sin abounding. You see perhaps your own children going wayward. Do you see the, your wayward child who's rejected God's truth? But God's word would tell us, yes, you see it. Yes, you know it. Yes, you pray for that child. But turn your gaze up. See the Lord who's on his throne, who can still call that child back, and who's using this time, this pain, to to lovingly sanctify you. He's using this painful time, we'll see, to refine you into the image of Christ. Yes, you see society heading further and further into immorality. But do you see the Lord who's on the throne? And he's raising up for himself a people for his own possession, for his own pleasure. He's he's saving and adopting children of light out of this dark world. To shine for him. And the darker the world gets, the stronger the contrast will be. Praise God. shine for him loved ones God's plans will not be thwarted no matter how much this world rejects God's words rejects God's laws our Lord still reigns he is still king over all his reign is supreme he's holding this world together Regardless of what social upheaval we see, remember God is on his throne and he's working all things together for our good and his glory. So God reigns is the first truth we see as we focus on the Lord. He's in his holy temple. (laughs) His throne is in heaven. It's not going anywhere. It's not crumbling. It's secure. Secondly, we see God knows. God knows. Again, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Then look at the end of that verse. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. That's that's a, a poetic way and even what the theologians say, an anthropomorphic way of expressing a truth to us, right? God is spirit. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have eyelids. But yet he condescends to speak to us in terms that we can relate to. And so what the truth that he's getting across is God sees, God knows. And the reason he talks about his eyelids testing, it's, it's like God's not just kind of casually observing, like, oh, okay, yeah, look at those, them breaking my laws and look at them, you know, passing these, these ungodly uh, laws and statutes into place and look at my church being persecuted he's not just kind of a casual observer he is actively seeing and he's evaluating his eyelids are testing he's testing he's considering 
So be encouraged. You're, you're, the, the struggle that you feel, maybe you're like David and you, you're personally being attacked by, by wicked people. God sees. God knows. He's taking into account. He, he's, he's, in a way we could say he's keeping a record, right? He's seeing. He's testing. He's going to act. He's considering the actions against you. And he will hold people accountable. No action is hidden from God. And this is what's so encouraging, and we'll get into this the next truth about God executing justice, right? When we see injustice happening, when we see God's laws being broken, when we see innocent people being mistreated, and then we, we, the human institutions fall short, they fail, right? And oftentimes, they, they, we feel like justice wasn't done. What, what is being, what's evil is being called good or, or people are not being brought to an account. But the truth is, God will bring them to an account. God sees and he knows and he's testing. And he's going to act and that's the last truth. God will execute justice. Right? God will execute justice. Throughout Scripture and church history, God's people who suffer or are being persecuted cry out, How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked prosper? How long will God's people be trampled upon? And what appears to us as a delay, and what we fear with that delay is, is God ignorant? Does he not see? Does he not care? No, it's not ignorance. It's not indifference. It's just according to his plan. He sees He knows, he cares, and he will act in his timing. And that's where David goes here. God will execute justice. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. What a contrast we see here. Kind of like you see in the wisdom literature lots of times. Right? Between the righteous and the wicked. What, what do we see here? Well, the Lord tests the righteous, but he hates the wicked. Right? The Lord tests the righteous, and in the end, the righteous will see his face. But the Lord hates the wicked, and in the end, they will face eternal judgment. The Lord tests the righteous. Again, this helps us... Un- Rightly think about the situation we're in. That word test is that well-known picture of, 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 um, fi- of metal being put into the fire to purify it, right? Being, to refine it, to have the impurities removed so that it, what's left is even more pure, more, more perfectly reflects God's glory. God uses persecution and the trials of this crumbling world to refine us, his people, That's what it says. The Lord tests the righteous. That's being done out of love. That's being done because he loves us and he wants to sanctify us. He he knows that the more dross he removes, the more idols he removes, the more he weans us off of this fallen world, the more we will behold his face, the more we will enjoy his presence, 
And that's for our ultimate good because he alone can satisfy our souls. So the very persecution, the very danger, the very upheaval that we're facing, a loving and sovereign God is bringing that into our lives for our good and his glory. The Lord tests the righteous. But notice the Lord is righteous, verse 7. What does that mean? The Lord is righteous. Well, it means he always does what is right. <laughs> he always does what is right. It means he loves justice. It means he will punish sin. And we can rejoice in that. God is not indifferent to sin. God is not indifferent to the wicked. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. The psalm goes on, verse 12, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Oh, there's someone else with a bow who's bent and ready. And it's the Lord. He will execute justice. Right? We, we feel a, a righteous indignation when we see evil around us. That's how much more does a holy God feel that? God is not indifferent. Psalm 9 verse 7 says, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. So we know that God will execute justice. And the New Testament says because we know that, we can trust Him and we can wait on Him and we don't need to take vengeance in our own hands. Right? We're not called to fight back. Hebrews 10 verse 30 says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So that's why Romans 12 says, don't take vengeance. Rather, do good to those who curse you. Give a cup of cold water to those who would hurt you. Right? We, we, we keep trying to show the love of Christ to those around us. And, and we return good for evil by the empowering of the Spirit. And we pray for those who persecute us, Jesus said. That they would repent because if they don't repent, eternal judgment awaits them. No doubt David had in mind the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. When he penned verse 6 there of Psalm 11, right? Doesn't that remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah? Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. On the throne, loved ones, is a God who is righteous and loves justice and will execute justice. God will uphold his name. He will uphold the truth. He is righteous. Some of that judgment may come now and, and, you know, God's providence. He may bring temporal judgment on the wicked. They may reap some of the, the, the fruits of their wickedness, but we know ultimately that judgment will come at the end, at the final judgment. One more, one more verse that I want to give you as, a, as a, another complimentary passage here psalm verse five psalm five verse four says for you are not a god who delights in wickedness evil may not dwell with you think about that for you are not a god who delights in wickedness 
evil may not dwell with you. And as I thought about this psalm, and I thought about how we see the foundations crumbling, and yet we're considered, we are God's righteous people by his grace. We have the amazing promise at the end of verse 7 that the upright will behold his face. I thought about the gospel. I thought about the beauty of the gospel. Because the Lord is righteous and he executes justice and he punishes sin. And were it not for his grace, were it not for the, the, the cross of Christ, none of us could stand before him. We were, would all be counted among the wicked. But it, with the cross, with the good news of the gospel, we see the, the justice of God and we see the love of God. We see the holy uh, wrath of God. We also see the mercy, mercy of God all connecting. God punishes his own son because his son is bearing our sin. He's bearing our guilt. And so God exercises his justice on the innocent one so that the guilty, you and me, could be saved. So that the guilty, you and me, won't receive justice. We receive mercy. We receive grace. What a beautiful truth. How precious is the gospel that we could be counted among God's people. That we can rejoice in and, and long for God's justice to come for his final judgment to come why because we have been and will be preserved from that wrath even though we deserve it but if you're here today without christ then please know that the lord is righteous he will execute justice he will not sweep sin under the rug all sins will be punished. All sins will receive God's wrath. Those who are saved, those who've been born again, those who've been purchased by the shed blood of Christ, our sins were punished on the cross, at the cross. But if you're without Christ, you will bear God's wrath yourself in the end. But even as we long for his final justice to come as we long for the new heavens and the new earth and we long for the eradication of sin. God is withholding his return because he's merciful, because he's still granting forgiveness and entrance into his kingdom. So if you're without Christ, turn from your sins and by faith embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. You will escape his wrath and you'll be saved. And you, you will likewise get to share in this precious promise that the upright will behold his face. You'll get to be with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. One more passage. I forgot about this one. Revelation 22, verse 3 says, it's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. 
They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, Christian, that's our future. As we suffer now and as we focus on the Lord, we, we get to behold his face with the eyes of faith. We get to know him in, in more intimate ways. Praise God for that. And one day we will see him with resurrected, redeemed eyes and bodies, fully sanctified hearts, and we'll get to be in his glorious presence forever and ever. So until that time, don't flee, but focus on the Lord. Keep doing what's right. Keep being salt and light. Keep proclaiming the, the justice and the mercy of God at the cross of Christ. May God be pleased to use us to reach more people for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a righteous God, that you are sovereign, that you are reigning. Lord, we do grieve at the sin that abounds, the crumbling of, of morality around us. But thank you that we don't have to be anxious, that, we're, that we don't have to feel... Um, like who's going to make this right? Who's going to call people to account? We know you see and you reign and you will execute justice. Thank you for your mercy that you've shown us in Christ. Thank you that we are your own and that we can know you now and that one day we'll see your face. Encourage your, your people today, Lord, encourage those who are in the midst of this chaos. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing a final song of praise.